From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Skyline. My name is Dan Metter. One month ago, during her inauguration speech, Mitra Jalali told the city of St. Paul that the group of council members that stood before them were going to take up a comprehensive policy of housing. Here to talk about what she thinks that looks like is Council President Mitra Jalali. Hi, Council President. Hi, thanks for having me today. I wanted to start off with a question about tenants' rights. Uh, you, know, you said in your speech that uh, the city would want to include policies around tenants' rights. Um, this last uh, January, uh, the, the January 1st of this year, uh, there were a wide variety of tenants' rights that were passed at the state level. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what would you like to see St. Paul do differently? Um, or, or uh, how, how would you like to see St. Paul expand on tenants' rights that maybe the state hasn't done? I am looking with my council to uh, really reach that um, spectrum of housing needs through our policies. So, you know, there's production, preservation, protections, right? And we know that, uh, you know, having more housing options at all income levels is important. We know that investing in the the affordability of those options and then also uh, uh, the existing housing that we have is an important preservation strategy. And we know that protections are necessary for people who rent their home in St. Paul. That's that's the majority of our community. That's half of our city that, you know, it's February 6th today. So they are most likely at the top of their lease if they're living on a month to month. And there are many, many people who. Uh, live on, you know, uh, just a 30 day cycle of wondering if this is going to be the house that they can stay in. Um, that level of instability is not something that um, we can take lightly. So we are we're really looking at all of it. We definitely as the council, uh, I think, are looking forward to a I think we need a rent stabilization evaluation. Um, you know, this council that just got elected uh, was elected on, you know, a commitment to uphold and improve rent stabilization. Uh, we know that uh, there are a lot of needs around the policy to ensure it's working as intended and that it's serving everyone in our city. Uh, in addition to rent stabilization, there's discrimination renters navigate in the housing market. So looking at um, everything from, you know, um, source of income discrimination is something that I know that the state has looked at in the past or might look at again. I'm hopeful that they would take that on. But, you know, if not, there's some uh, there's some local precedent that, you know, uh, we could look at 
anyone who's renting on like a source of income like Section 8 or um, similar, uh, um, you know, program would not face discrimination trying to get into a place to live. Uh, we know that if you live in a building that's older, it could get upscaled, it could get bought and flipped, and a lot of renters get displaced in that process. Constituents that have called my office, constituents in buildings on the east side. There's a lot of um, what's called naturally occurring affordable housing in you know the heart of the city, in um, in Rondo and Frogtown and neighborhoods surrounding it, in the midway that I represent. So, you know, an anti-displacement policy around. Uh, making sure tenants in those buildings have advance notice if their building is changing hands, that there's a protection period, uh, relocation assistance in the event that their rents go up. Things like that are important so that uh, we are making sure that we can include everyone in the growth that our city is experiencing. So these are just some of the ideas. Um, looking forward to discussing more with our community and the council we just elected. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about just real briefly what what those conversations with members of your community look like um you know when when you're going out and talking to to folks about these issues of tenants rights what what are some of the common responses that you're getting from folks in your community you know from from listening to my own constituents and then constituents around the community one of the top ones is uh property owner and landlord responsiveness so you know, habitability issue, um, code enforcement, repairs, timely repairs. Uh, I had someone reach out to me this week because there was something happening with the sewage in her in her apartment and the entire home like reeked of sewage and the landlord wasn't answering emails for nearly a week. And that's the type of thing that's just not acceptable. And so there's got to be a piece to this that's around just more renter-friendly city infrastructure, right? Like that's everything from inspectors to um, local support hotline to, um, you know, culturally competent folks that understand, you know, maybe if you're calling it a different language, the city can help you navigate how to hold the property owner accountable to their part of it. Um, I think that people really also underestimate just like community education and um, the ability to, really just on the front end, do more education around what the rights and responsibilities of renters and landlords are. And, you know, is there an angle there where we support community organizations in doing that work on the front end so that people have better time during their tenancy, like on both ends of the equation? Um, these are just some examples there that, but, you know, that's all part of what we're trying to get at is I can't tell you how often there's some kind of you know, urgent habitability issue, right? And a constituent reaches out either, you know, the heat is on in the middle of July and there's no way they can access the heat from their unit to the sewage thing to um, just, you know, broken stuff that hasn't gotten fixed. So um, that type of thing is not acceptable. And, you know, the city can play a role in having uh, better funded enforcement and a, and a clearer avenue through, um, you know, just basic info for renters to contact to get help with that. Moving a little bit towards uh, the rent control side of the conversation, um, you know, St. Paul has been obviously an epicenter ever since it passed um, its uh, uh, ordinance around uh, rent control um, and, and citizens 
made their voices heard at the ballot. Um, I came to rent control. Um, you, you told other outlets that you feel like this, uh, ordinance that, you know, was amended for, um, for new developments, um, that, that they should be exempted. Um, you told other outlets that you feel like this policy, um, shouldn't exempt all new construction. Um, I was curious if you could walk us through a little bit, um, your thinking on rent control and as well as, um, talking to us about what kinds of developments you feel like should or should not be exempted. Well, what I would start with is just the starting point going into this year, which is I really feel that we need a policy evaluation. I really feel like our community deserves empirical information about what is and isn't happening in a comprehensive way. We've had this anecdotal discourse going, and I just think we need an independent assessment, right? This ballot initiative came to us in 2021. It went into effect in 2022. Uh, it's been there since 2023. We're going into 2024. So that's one just big picture piece that I think is important as context. I think that is essential to any future policy conversation. As someone who was there when we amended the ordinance in uh, 2022, I would say a big concern and a complicated category to solve for is um, any type of subsidized housing was suddenly exempted from the rent stabilization ordinance, which if you're familiar with the world of housing, like the range of subsidies in housing is huge. It's vast. That encompasses such a myriad of types of properties. Um, you know, we had a discussion around low income housing tax credit funded projects and um, the the, you know, Federal definitions of affordability being much more inflated than what the average renter actually can afford. So if you're talking 60% AMI, area median income, by a federal definition that includes the metro area that the property is in, and we know the city median income is so much lower, like the equivalent of hundreds of dollars a month in rent that you can afford than the area median income. So even these federally regulated properties that uh, I think the logic was, well, they're already rent regulated in some way on an affordability schedule, so they shouldn't have to be rent stabilization. Um, we know that we still experience uh, things like tax credits expiring um, and then the, you know, the property changes over. That's happened to renters in my ward or just other Factors that mean a local ordinance could still be helpful to renters in in some of those buildings. So I think that's a really complicated category. You know, the affordable housing sector has also gone through uh, the challenges of, you know, inflation, like supply chain, interest rates, everything that, you know, we've experienced in the last few years, just macroeconomically. So I think we need to look at this category thoughtfully. Um, the reason that I talked about that with regard to new construction is that the way the ordinance was written and amended, defined new construction as any building built in the last 20 years. Well, a lot of the housing in my ward was built in the last 10 years, and it's not quite new anymore. And a lot of it is that subsidized housing and renters in those buildings lost their protections. So this is what I mean when I say I think we need to really parse this more carefully. I certainly think that, you know, we need to we need to review the the outcomes, but um, we want to meet that balance of achieving more supply of housing and then making sure if you're in a uh, if you're in a building that was created with some type of 
subsidy, you know, to just automatically exempt you from renter protections isn't fair either. How do we make sure renters in every building, no matter where they live, have guarantee against displacement, whether that's through rent stabilization or other? I think we need to take that up. And it's complex and it will take a lot of effort. I do feel confident in this council that was recently elected. You know, it's returning council members and new ones, but we all were asked very openly if we will uphold the ordinance and commit to improving it and said yes. And I think that is uh, our that's our mandate. That's our expectation. So that will be our responsibility going forward. And. You know, you have also uh, talked about vacancy decontrol being something that um, you're opposed to, um, which for our audience um, is a policy where landlords can raise rent beyond inflationary allowance between tenants. Um, Do you talk a little bit uh, about why you feel like vacancy decontrol is maybe not for St. Paul? You know, I I just think that this feature of the policy, this ability to raise the rent once a renter leaves the unit, that's what we're referring to. I am very concerned it disincent or that it, you know, incentivizes a landlord to essentially get a renter out of there through whatever means they can so that once it's vacated, they can increase the rent. Like I just I don't see a good way to safeguard against that. I think that kind of goes against the core point of the policy. Um, that is in, that is a policy feature where, you know, I had very strong concerns about that when that was brought. That was one of the reasons why I felt like I couldn't support the changes that came forward. Um, yeah, that would be just the the overarching piece of it. I think that within rent stabilization, there are many elements to a policy and that we have uh, a lot to review, but you know that going into it feels like one that is pretty well substantiated. And just from a design standpoint, um, I have a lot of concerns about. Sure, and in in this entire conversation, um, there's there's also you know an aspect of enforcing rent control. Um, are, are there any thoughts um, by yourself or by your council members, um, or, or sorry, your fellow council members? Um, in in looking and, and expanding possible ways uh, to enforce rent control uh, for the uh, DSR? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a huge area of concern for us. You know, we have to look at the rules and regulations, for example, uh, the agency put in place. Uh, right now, property owners are allowed to self-certify. That's not something that ever went through council approval. That is not you know, um, that feels like a that that feels like an, an add on of what we uh, voters and, you know, council um, spoke to, which is, you know, we basically designated an implementing agency. But then, you know, this this rules process was set up and I think that needs to get revisited. What's happening right now is renters will reach out. They'll say my landlord self-certified. I didn't really know about that. Now my rent is going up. I don't understand why. Um I, f- I try to appeal it. I don't really have any recourse. Right. So I think that is like a loophole that we need to look at. We need to clean that up. And then I think in order to uh, improve this process better, we need to look at, you know, in- enforcement. So how are we funding um, people who can, you know, be there when you when you report that you think the ordinance is being violated and actually uh, talk with you through what that means? 
um, help you access legal resources. Uh, you know, we need more folks to be able to do appeals and reviewing those. That's all part of what we're looking at here. So uh, it will be a big process, but we I think that it connects to, you know, just the experience the renter has in our community. If you need help, uh, the city should be on your side. So that's all part of what we're working on here. Yeah. And most of this conversation has been focused on uh, tenants rights and, and rent control. Um, but I, I want to open it up to, you know, conversations about housing, uh, more broadly. Um, and, uh, are, are there any other policies that, you know, you're really, uh, hoping to somehow introduce, um, in, in this next session, uh, you know, that will, that will have an effect on housing policy. Yeah. So, you know, I think building on the zoning reform work that we've taken as a city, right, and land use requirements that make it unnecessarily complicated or needlessly difficult to build more housing. You know, in the last term I just completed, we eliminated parking minimums. We, uh, you know, we did eliminate single family only zoning. So now you can build multifamily uh, at a small scale or more throughout virtually all of the city. We, um, you know, that's that's the wonderful unit zoning changes. We expanded the definition of family in city code. Like all of these things matter, right, for reflecting modern households and the housing options that will serve them. I think the piece that we're looking at with this council is not only do we want to build on that and support that good work, which is important and in line with our comprehensive plan, we also want to support local ownership opportunities. So everything from, you know, first time homeownership and folks who want to own their home to uh, looking at the the ownership footprint of all of these properties around the community from residential to commercial. How many out-of-state investor-owned properties do we have along our commercial corridors and how is that connected to blight? We know that it is uh, we know that it's a problem in a lot of neighborhoods we represent. We want to activate those spaces. We want to make sure wealth created in our community stays in our community and is not extracted. So, you know, it's it's about looking at how are we fostering ownership, things like expanding and um, improving and supporting land trust efforts like the Rondo Land Trust, which doesn't just operate in Rondo. Um, you know, we have different investment co-op uh, uh, efforts in my ward, Midway Investment Co-op. The, the Taproot Investment Cooperative really aimed at local commercial ownership. That's all part of, I think, building neighborhoods. And as we're adding neighbors, we're adding, you know, amenities and supporting like a healthier local economy. So all that's connected. Um, you know, things I'm tracking at the legislature include the source of income discrimination item I mentioned, uh, really looking at you know, I've heard that some groups are looking at the land value tax, like essentially making it possible for local communities to uh, explore a land value tax. I think there's a conversation to be had there around, you know, how are we, again, changing the economics of speculative real estate? I think that's important. Um, all of that's connected. So these are just some ideas. Uh, certainly, you know, in addition to that, there's major redevelopment opportunities happening in, I think, almost all of our wards. So uh, really shaping and championing those projects, many of which are on a multi-year schedule, and really ensuring the communities at the table. Um, I think this is about saying yes and to development. So we want investment. We want to uh, welcome, you know, the opportunity to 
redevelop and grow our community. And we want to make sure that it's it's uh, creating amenities and options and meeting need for folks here. So all that's connected um, from, you know, investment and uh, affordability to policy. I think we're looking at all of it. Uh, and my last question for you, uh, Council President, is you know, uh, we know that, you know, housing affects everything, you know, uh, from where people go to school to, you know, the, their health, their everyday health. Um, and, and I'm curious if there are any um, housing related policies that you're hoping to maybe um, get through this, um, this session that maybe when when people hear about it they they don't necessarily think it's related to housing um is there anything like that on your docket i would say you know um climate action work and how that's connected so we are looking at you know urban canopy this year like trees as a climate mitigation strategy and a lot of our residents live in parts of the city where there's a mini urban heat island. There isn't enough physical shade or urban greenery to, you know, support temperatures cooling. And we're living through, I'm sure you've experienced this and maybe I'm not sure where you moved from, but, you know, we're having a, a very alarmingly warm winter, right? So we know that climate change is upon us and that it's going to be a huge problem. So I think that there's a blending of our, you know, land use policies that will help us build out more resilient neighborhoods. Neighborhoods where you have locally owned and operated uh, businesses that you can walk to. Um, you have multiple housing options at all income levels, right in that area, supported by zoning and, you know, bus uh, renter laws that allow you to access that housing and afford it. And then you also have the um, ecosystem around it, like. Um, you know, trees and biodiversity and things like that that are important for shading. And, you know, we have funds from the federal government to expand our, uh, our, you know, our tree resources as a city this year that I'm looking at in, you know, there's an example of Westgate Park is a ward, uh, sorry, a new park that was built in my ward. It is completely surrounded by new multifamily housing. It's a beautiful little area, lots of East African families, um, renters of all backgrounds all living in one, you know, uh, transit connected hub off the Westgate light rail station. And there aren't any trees at the park. And so, you know, how do we make sure that we have this in every neighborhood of our community? Um, that's a climate action strategy. And it connects to, uh, you know, the neighborhoods we're trying to build as a city. So that's an example of how it all fits together. There are certainly many more. Uh, Council President Jalali, is there Anything else that you were hoping to add to this conversation that maybe I haven't asked you the right question for? You know, I can't think of anything right now. I certainly appreciate the conversation and uh, happy to do, you know, any uh, clarification or things like that. But, you know, thank you for following our work. Thank you for covering this council as we embark on this new chapter. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that was uh, Council President Mitra Jalali uh, talking just now. Uh, thank you for listening.